From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, a very special edition of Wharton Moneyball because the whole crew here is together. We're not quite live because this is Tuesday afternoon, but we're in the same room for the first time since early March 2020. This is Cade Massey joined in person by Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We literally haven't sat here and looked at each other. All the four, all four of us, we've all seen each other, but not at the same time. Even Matty Datz, the boss man, is here riding herd, and we're going to do two hours of sports analytics as we do every week. Thanks for joining us. We're going to go into our first quarter here on COVID and then roll into three quarters on sports analytics. But first, gentlemen, great to see you. Good afternoon to you. Great to see you. We're looking great, by the way, after a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, not a day older. No, yeah, not, I, y'all don't y'all look the same. I don't want assessments on how I look. I feel like the eighteen months have been a little rough. Uh, I think we should start with a little bit of reflecting. We have, of course, the news of the day to to process. But since we're sitting here, like literally since whatever March, I don't know March single digits probably last time we were together. Um, what's on your mind about COVID in the last 18 months or the next 18 years? Or like, how do you think about it from a big picture? Cause, cause this is a bit of a moment for us. And I think we should kind of take it as an excuse to reflect on some bigger picture questions. I think this is the word that we're all going to have to get used to hearing, which is endemic. The COVID virus is going to be a new respiratory virus that we all have to deal with potentially on a yearly or annual, a semi-yearly basis. Um, I, I, my daughter's in town. I talked to her and she's, she was, she's working on today's election day. She's working an election out in Radnor. Um, and she was talking to people there and they're talking about kids who've had it twice and vaccinated. Um, and nobody seriously ill by any measure. Once you're vaccinated and had it once, I don't think you see particularly bad consequences, but I just think that given what we've observed about COVID at this point, it's going to mutate and change as vir- respiratory viruses do, and it'll just be around. Um, and I, I think what we're going to have to forecast is how we as a society will deal with that shift. Are we going to impose restrictions that we've had for all these years? Are we going to lighten up? I don't. That's the thing that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking about the heterogeneity in that societal response a lot because I think you know. I mean, I was having discussions with friends, you know, just last night, and they're talking about you know. I was talking about some upcoming travel, and they're like, yeah, I th- I'm looking forward to traveling once COVID is over. I'm like, <laughs> people keep saying, we're, yeah. like, I'm like, what do you mean by that now? You actually have to kind of define now. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to have to define for themselves what they mean by COVID being over. Because like you said, I, it's going to be endemic. Um, at what point do we start basically kind of treating it like it's just sort of a part of life? For me, the, the, the kind of line I constantly – Drives. At what point does it become like the flu or does the flu become like COVID? Do we start actually getting more freaked out by flu season because now we've got all this sort of sensitivity to viral things? But that's that's kind of, you know, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree with Shane. I think we've all gotten used to 
deaths happen. Matter of fact, I think actually probably the, the data that Adi gave out early on in March and April of 2020 of how many people die each year of the flu, I think was surprising to most people. It's not a thousand, it's tens of thousands of people. And in bad seasons, it's even worse than that. But I think, and we've gotten used to that. Like, matter of fact, we don't all walk around with masks on prior to 2020. You could if you said you don't want to get the flu and you don't want to die. Certainly not mandating flu vaccines and never have. Right. And so my point is, That, to me, is probably an acceptable level, but not an order of magnitude bigger than that. If you told me that the the COVID ended up two, three times more deadly than the flu on an annual basis, roughly, let's make it up, 100,000 people die every year. I don't think most people would see that as an acceptable level. And that's my opinion, is that if we can get down to the flu level... All right, so now we have two causes of death that are about the flu level. But if it's three or four times the level of the flu, I think we can have a problem. That, that sounds right to me, and your reflections on this resonate with me. I would add I'm concerned about what comes next, and I'm curious when you say this is endemic and it permutes or whatever, um, does that include the next big one? Because when we've talked to experts, and we've had the privilege of talking to some of our experts on the show over the last year and a half, to a person, they say, I mean, get ready because it's going to happen again. And the, they've been hitting at increasing frequency. And so it's just a matter of years until another big one hits the world. Well, I mean, mean big, a big, big one in the SARS class. Yeah. Oh, you don't mean the COVID. You just mean just another pandemic. Another pandemic. And that's what so I'm trying to generalize. So we start out no. with oh, variations on COVID and now we had the flu. But I think really big picture, we have to look for another one, a, a pandemic type thing right but i mean i just just to kind of because you know i mean just to distinguish from i I think you're talking about like some other kind of viral class not necessarily like some um you know variant of covid COVID. that becomes like vaccine resistant that's exactly right but this is exactly what i'm saying so because because that that that, even even if we do get a variant of covid that becomes vaccine resistant that probably won't be another big one in the same way the first one was because we've learned so much about treating covid it's not just about kind of uh, vaccinating against infection right we have antivirals now that we didn't have before except okay so consider it uh, consider an hypothesis that we'll have another big one relatively soon and that the world now has, this is the first one in a hundred years that the world's really had to deal with collectively. And all indications from the experts are we'll have another one before a hundred years pass. And to what extent is that just going to be another kind of variation on this in that we have to do lots of, we have to take lots of protective measures or not. We distance or not. We change the way organizations run or not. It feels to me like, that's more, even though it's a different class, the behaviors required are quite similar. And now that, and now the world is kind of geared up for it in a way, at least possibly. Though your point about heterogeneity, Shane, is an interesting one. It's like, man, is this just going to be another source of division? Because oh, it's because yeah, it's, it's going to be a lifelong source of division, I, I think. Because you know, I mean, you know, we've learned a lot, but you know, there there's people who have learned that, you know, masking works and that they need to social distance and all that. So the next time this rolls around, there's going to be a subset of people that are very kind of, you know, viral careful and and the lessons learned from COVID will will help them out. But there's also people that are anti, you, you know, you know, that have learned that they don't trust vaccines and through this process. And that's going to probably transfer over to the next one. We're talking pandemic in Q1. We're talking together in person for the first time in a year and a half, Center City, Philadelphia. Adi Shane's just making the point that it could be even worse in the future, this division, because, you know, we didn't start out quite this divided 18, 20 months ago, but over the course of that pandemic, we've become that. That's a bad starting place for the next one, to the extent that there is a next one. 
There is, but I do believe that there are features of this virus which are not likely to replicate. So let's just go backwards. The 1918 flu catastrophe had a 3% death rate and it targeted, get this, 20 to 40-year-olds. They were the most likely to die. If there was a vaccine, I don't think there would have been heterogeneity about willingness to take it. Uh, Adi, because of their exposure, like what would be the rationale where someone 20 to 40 exposed to the same dosage, if they were, yeah. would die more often than someone, let's say, 60 to 80? Okay, Wasn't I, that cytokine explosion type thing? It, that- it, it was, it, I don't think it was a cytokine. I think this is out of my pay grade. <laughs> this is real virology. No, no, I'm, just flu, to, no, I'm, I'm just asking on a general sense, why would age, why would there be I an think, interior maximum I think it had to do. I think it had to do with prior exposure to a similar virus. It's a flu virus, um, and there are a bunch of them. They, they are have the H1N1, et cetera, et cetera. There's these main arms that cross over. But I believe the elderly population had been exposed, and the babies get the exposure from or protection. And it was this 20 to 40, a lot of people coming home from the war sort of. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, and this may be newer knowledge than yeah. I, I read a book probably a decade ago mm-hmm. about that Spanish or Spanish, Spanish, sorry, yeah. the, the, the yeah. 1918 pandemic. And at least it talked a lot about this kind of cytokine, like, you know, essentially overreaction that essentially, you know, that particular, flu took advantage of uh you know the what would actually killed a lot of the younger people was just a, a very disproportionate immune response so those that actually had the healthier more robust immune responses actually ended up having the worst health outcomes right. in that particular situation but i mean Marty may be talking about more recent knowledge so, than so I'm re- I'm that really, book but i'm really just concerned about the issue of heterogeneity and vaccine uptake and here's a data point that Eric, you shared with us just before we started, 97.5% of Americans age 65 and over have had a dose of the vaccine. Mm, yep. That is, and that basically, they are the people most threatened by COVID. So there is an hesitancy among the people who are who are issue, at issue and at risk. The hesitancy is in the younger group for whom the concern of the virus is much less on a, certainly on a, on a, on a mortality basis, on, on lots of other aspects of it. And it's also confounded and by comorbidities. So I'm not so sure. I think this is a particularism of COVID, which we've had to really deal with. And that's caused a lot of the heterogeneity. And I'm not sure in a future virus, we would have to deal with that. But I think in the endemicness of this virus, we're going to see enormous heterogeneity. I think it's a super interesting statistic and it speaks to incentives and, and that some folks can't afford to take political stands on this thing. It's a little surprising to hear that. It's, it's surprising. It's quite surprising to me because we have seen people take expensive stands. So, for example, this Washington State head coach, football head coach who lost his job over what seems to be like deep convictions. I mean, you're willing to walk. I think it's, it should be eye opening to all of us that people are willing to bear those kinds of costs. It's not just, it, it's not just cheap. I mean, they're taking, they're taking real stands, but what these data suggest is that when, when you're in a health group that is severely vulnerable, then the take up is much higher. And that's, that's at least encouraging, but I think it's interesting. It's an interesting part of the political story. Eric was trying to get in. No, no, no. I was just going to wonder, I think the point that a lot of the, I'll call it younger person and hesitancy or trade-off happened was when that data came out of Provincetown, that's that 
you know, the five or 600 people that said there's asymptomatic spreading. And it's actually might be as much spreading as the people vaccinated versus not. Because the, the, the rationale for many young people getting vaccinated was I'm protecting others. But then when the data started coming out saying maybe the protection for others is not that great. Now you have to. And do it the wanes. Tra- right. And it wanes. Now you have to do the calculus. So I'm not going to die. I'm not necessarily going to protect someone else that well. And so that's when I started to notice that the rates for the elderly continued to grow really fast. And for the, I'll call it the middle age to the younger age, started okay, to okay. slow down. Hold on. I, I don't want to be the stupid person here, but do we know that? Because that still surprises me. And I feel like we've had mixed evidence on this, that the vaccinated can spread as readily as the unvaccinated can spread? I, yeah, I don't think there's strong okay, data support hold for on that a second. statement. So as readily can be talked about in a broad context or a narrow context, they don't spread as readily. You're, you're, when you're vaccinated, your load is less, it clears your system quicker. But a factor of two spread in a certain level is really the same. Um, we're, we were hoping for 100 times less likely to spread. But uh, the data seems to be, and this is obviously anecdotal in my own family where it spread like crazy. No, but I think Adi, um, the issue is the other issue has been you've described this a couple of weeks ago. It's upper versus lower respiratory, which is yes, even exactly. people vaccinated keep a certain amount of vaccine. Uh, sorry, of, of the virus. No, no, of yeah. the virus in their upper respiratory system, which can be spread with others through coughing, not mm-hmm. wearing masks, etc. And so, while it doesn't spread as much, obviously the vaccines are extraordinarily effective, but. You still, if you get infected with the virus, even if you don't come symptomatic, you can still spread it. Okay, but, the but, viral but load I don't think it's okay. as, as the same, but my point was that it's fairly close. And if you look at the data, right. particularly before boosters came in, the countries that vaccinated and, and were the first stricken by the Delta wave, they were observing lots and lots of transmission among vaccinated people. It wasn't just Provincetown okay, that preceded I, that. We just have to be careful because we're supposed to be the ones who understand shades of gray. And I worry that we're saying it's greater than it's it's not it's not zero spread among vaccinated. Therefore, it's possible. Therefore, it's not possible. We're not talking about possibility. We're talking about a still a great deal of transmission. And it's not small. It's not rare. It's very common. Okay. Then the next. Okay. Okay. Good. That's helpful. The next question begins. How much, much less common is it than when you are vaccinated? Yeah, that I actually don't know the number. But what I was thinking of is a problem I was actually thinking about for research the other day, which is. So you now have a multi-attribute objective function. So one is I want to protect myself. The other is I want to protect others. Both of those are very laudable goals. But depending on how much weight I put on those two things, I might come out with a different optimal strategy for me to decide. If I put all the weight on protecting myself from severe illness, I might choose one option. If I shift more weight to something, and there's no, I hate to say it this way, I wish I could say there's a right or wrong answer on how much weight to put on these two. I think you should put infinite, personally, I put infinite weight on both, but I could understand somebody saying, I choose not to get vaccinated because my chances of death and severe illness are low. And if, maybe I falsely believe, but if I believe that I can't spread it heavily, I can I can see that rationale. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I think everyone should get vaccinated because, again, even if there's, to me, the loss function of severe illness and death is so high that even if the reduction is not 95% to 1% or whatever it is for someone my age, even if it's 95, you know, 1% to 10%, 
that's still significant enough for me. That's just me. Let me ask you about another attribute in that multi-attribute utility function, and that is the impact of your personal decision on others' decisions. So I'm curious. This is a general. This is a different, a little bit of a different question, especially as we transition into this next phase, where there's so much ambiguity. To what extent are you thinking about the impact of what how you do how you conduct yourself on others, oh, I, and I, to I, what extent should you? So especially, you know especially at the university, of course, because we play some leadership roles there, but just generally in life, we have to realize we're social animals. We learn from each other. There's we, I think we should have this other attribute in our utility function. I don't yet know what that means for our behavior. I'm curious what you think it means for your behavior. I'll tell you what I think. Um, I think at this point there's, we should really divide up into two kinds of people, those who regular contact with elderly and those who just don't. And if you are regularly in contact with elderly parents, for example, you really are, you really should be quite careful in a way that people who aren't in regular contact with elderly don't have to worry. Um, and of course, so I, I was discussing with a friend, we were getting to talking about getting together. He's both his parents are alive and they're quite elderly. And, and he wanted me to make sure that I was not carrying the virus before we got together. I thought it was a very reasonable request for someone who has regular contact with elderly. I don't. My parents have long deceased. I don't see old people. And I feel like everybody else has the opportunity to get vaccinated and should. And if they haven't gotten vaccinated, well, I'm not sure that's my problem. No, and I mean, it's, it's interesting that you kind of make that particular cut across society, because I think the way we mostly kind of informally are making the cut across society is vaccinated versus unvaccinated. You know, and so like, you know, I, I think, you know, talking about, you know, your kind of contact point and whether you're close to elderly or not, I think is 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 a, is a you know, a, a different take and a very, a better one. I was going to go with a different cut. I thought he was going to just say those who are ready to throw caution to the wind and enjoy the endemic nature of this thing and those who want to continue to be cautious. So I also was impressed yeah. with the very different cut that he took on things. Well, I was going to say a couple of things. One is a lot of people, matter of fact, one of my colleagues, Jonah Berger, a lot of his research is on two issues that very much relate to this. One is what's called visual diffusion. So seeing others adopt products and services makes you much more likely to adopt products and services. So the fact is, when you see, you hear about a million people, a million and a half people a day getting the vaccine, that just the visual of that is going to make more people adopt products and services. The other thing he talks about, in fact, his dissertation research is about what he calls in-group, out-group. Yeah. So the problem is, yeah. is that if enough people don't get the vaccine, I hate to say it, but it legitimizes, in my view, this is my opinion, the out-group. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have a rationale. And by the way, your rationale may not be the same as their rationale. They may have an objective, multi-attribute objective function that says they maybe shouldn't get it. And then you say, well, that person didn't get it. Yeah, that person's... 40 years younger than you, doesn't see the elderly, and that person does X, Y, and Z, and you don't. You have comorbidities, you're this, you're that. So that's the problem. It requires a level of rational decision-making to be to do that that I don't think most people are doing. So that's the other thing. You're simplifying heuristics, and that's the problem. And I think it also, on the part of people who see like an outgroup behaving to their extent irrationally, I think we also, I think, would be well-served to continue to at least foster some empathy for this outgroup that's not behaving necessarily the way we think they should behave because let's understand that fear anxiety all these things you know yeah they're, they're not rational emotions they don't lead to that I think it's, it's, really it's, it, it's not a constructive way to engage those that are fearful anxious about a vaccine or whatever okay, okay. other behavior okay i love this i mean i didn't know where we were where y'all were going to take this when i talk about 
choosing behaviors based at least partially on their impact on others. But this is a big one. And like how we, how we even talk about this, how we talk about other groups, whether or not we stigmatize other groups, this should be one of the big things we learn coming out of this thing. And it, as bad as the politiza- politicization has been, we still are in charge of our response to that. And the only hope we have is to be wiser because the, the, the instinctive human response is the in-group, out-group response. And we have to learn to overcome that, or at least to fight it in some way. I was just, to Shane's, but I agree with everything Shane said. But the one thing is, at some point, the basis of statistical evidence, this is, matter of fact, this is what I tell my MBA students all the time. <laughs> I rarely disagree with somebody unless they say one plus one isn't two. Like, if you're, you're willing to make any statement, I'm willing to live with it. But what I'm going to tell you is, what are the assumptions have to be true for your statement to be true? And if it's one with low probability, I'm going to tell you it is. At some point, there has to be an overwhelming amount of statistical evidence. Someone's allowed to be fearful. What degree of risk aversion would someone have to have not to believe the massive degree of statistical evidence? That's the problem I have. But, is but, that, but Eric, it's, it's your, but statistical evidence alone is just not going to be sufficient no matter how strong it is. We've got to, you are a statistician. You right. are an academic. This is the way you think and you find I, it sufficient. I do. But I mean, there are many other ways to persuade people and we have to have, we have to use multiple because at statistical evidence alone pretty clearly at this point, is not going to be sufficient. Yeah, and I, I think a large number of people are just not swayed by scientific evidence, even if it is overwhelming. And there is, you know, holes that can be posted, poked it, in a lot of scientific it, evidence these days. The one thing I've learned about human understanding of probability is rare events are very badly interpreted and understood. And we're dealing with rare events on all sides of this. And that's why the, the, the elderly are, are taking the vaccine, because they're not dealing with a rare event. They're doing with something they can actually see and, and, and observe and measure and compare it to things they deal with. But if you're younger, you have to deal with the rare event of a, of a, a potential side effect or, or an unknown um, and a rare event of a bad outcome from COVID. And for most people, they just don't really know how to deal with that. And it makes it impossible. I also think there's an amazing tolerance among most of humanity for risk when it's in that low range. I understand the difference between one in a million, one in a hundred thousand, one in 10,000. Those are things that are easy for me. But for most people, once it's low, it's, it's just ignorable. We had to recognize also that people don't get their information. Most people don't get their information from academic articles or talking to statistician colleagues and buddies. Most people are getting it from some media source or social media source. And there is a strategic policy out there of misinformation. Some people are in, uh, invested in, in getting misinformation out there and people take it as doctrine. And so, Eric, it doesn't matter how many studies you bring, if their radio host has been telling them for months, and these are the radio hosts that have been invested in for years, it doesn't matter what you say, Eric. It doesn't matter the studies. It's like what that person says. This as is misinformation- why they need to listen to Wharton Moneyball <laughs> or follow us on at W Moneyball or email us at moneyball <laughs> at wharton.upenn.edu. The singular media and social media source on all Go things. on to SiriusXM <laughs> 132. Right. All you listen need. to our show. All you need in life. And then you'll get – I mean, we're, suge- we're talking about the data. That's what we're doing. And so that's what they need to do. At W Moneyball, Sirius XM 132. Okay, speaking of data, and we need to hit, we need to hit one more topic before we roll off of COVID today, and that is we're talking we're talking kind of macro themes, macro learnings from the pandemic. Since we're we're having a bit of a moment here um, together for the first time in twenty months, what have you learned as modelers? You, we're all modelers. What have you learned as a modeler? How do you think you model differently? 
I'm probably not going to use anymore what I'll call just because I can get some closed form solution to get some forecast, which is what we commonly do. You know, people do agent based modeling. I'll go back to my home field of marketing. Rick, for a Eric, closed form solution. Well, what that means is that literally, if I want to know the number of forecasted people, let's say with COVID in a given time period, I can literally write down an equation for it. There's no, I don't have to do simulation. I don't have to do advanced computation. Literally, there's an algebraic solution. I write down, you know, N sub T, the number of people with COVID at time T, and then there's an equal sign, and then there's an equation. And there's some parameters that I have to estimate. But if I knew the parameters, N sub T equals that. And I live a lot in the world of closed form solutions. But if you ask people in marketing that study diffusion, they're going to study networks. They're also going to study what we call agent-based models, which are required to have simulation approaches because they can bring in richer forms of heterogeneity, richer forms of non-stationarity. And so I'm not going to trade off in the future for myself, simpler math necessarily because I think it's going to lead to confident predictions that are too narrow and too overinflated in their confidence. Real quickly, give us the quick description of agent-based modeling. Well, so the idea is very simple. It's a diffusion. It's a, it's a process to model diffusion across units in a population. In marketing, we study diffusion of who buys products and services, but it could be for COVID. When two units smash into each other or interact, there's some probability of transference from one unit to the other. And then there's also the probability that someone buys it on their and buying and marketing on their own volition. And so the simple thing is that everybody, the simplest network is what we call the BAS model in marketing. Everybody that's bought before influences me. Well, we know that network structure isn't true. Everyone has what's called equal influence. Everyone that's bought influences me. The nice thing about the BAS model or what's called an equal influence model is that the math is simple. I can write down the number mm-hmm. of people that will buy the product. However, the minute there are networks, as Shane talked about, the minute there's non-stationary and heterogeneity, as Adi talked about, you can't write down that equation anymore. So now you have to generalize those assumptions. Am I, am I right in thinking about agent-based models as one way of thinking about it is you take an, an individual actor in some market or economy or whatever, you give them a very simple set of behavioral rules, very simple, and you give everybody, you, you might have heterogeneous actors, you might have homogeneous actors, you probably have a parameter on how much heterogeneity you have there. But they're very simple rules of behavior. And you got to let them go. Yeah. And you simulate what happens. And that the surprising bits are what can happen, even though everybody has very simple you rules. You much richer behavior just by allowing that kind of those into the every individual to be kind of a stochastic like representation of that. But it's not as elegant academically. So we don't tend to study. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that has really changed in statistics in the 30 years, it's hard to imagine that I've been sort of involved in the subject. We've moved away from closed form analytical expressions of, and estimates of variance. It used to be that we'd build these regression models, then we'd throw in covariance matrices, matrices to deal with non-stationarity. We'd get asymptotic formula for variance. This is a big deal back in the 80s. And then they invented the bootstrap, and they couldn't believe that this would work, which was to use the data itself to get variance. And then we moved into this massive simulation world where we could complicate more complicated models, but but we couldn't write closed form solutions to them. And then we would use this, this, the data itself divided into pieces and, and figure out what the variance would be. And it's all kind of computer driven. And this is what has changed statistics over the 30 years that I've been involved. And I feel like we didn't do that. The epidemiological world point. didn't Agreed. learn that, hasn't yeah. learned that. Uh, interesting. Well, that's consistent with, I think it's consistent. It's a more complicated version of what I was going to say. I've, I think I've learned from this. Two things. One, I think I think the epidemiologists would say among they probably agree with everything you have said, but their their models weren't behavioral enough, and it, the, the main source of non stationarity 
the biggest source of non-stationarity was people's responses to the changing environment. And that wasn't in their models. And so I think this is one of the big takeaways for those guys. I'm a behavioral guy, so that's not as surprising to me, but you know, I, it's really interesting to see the impact in this important setting. The other thing, and I think more generally is the value of, of high frequency data and use and exploiting that in your forecasting models. We had one guest in the last year and a half, YYG, I think is the way he, the world refers to him. He's been one of the most successful forecasters among the world of forecasters, even though nobody's done real well with this. And he's been purely empirical. He didn't come at it from an epidemiological perspective, but he made like two week forecasts and then updated his model, like religiously consistently made short term forecasts. We, we observed what happens in two weeks. It's high-frequency data if you Let explain it that way. Question. When you're referring to frequency, just to, for our listeners, to be clear, you're referring to time frequency, yeah. but you could also have extraordinarily granular data at the geospatial level. That's a different level. Of, sure. It's not time frequency, but you and you would be happy with both. Yes, though I think there's something about the resampling that's especially helpful with the time frequency. Um, a little, and, and, and kind of like maybe – you know, when Audie was talking about how the epidemiologists maybe haven't picked up all this kind of simulation-based stuff yet, it could just be that these kind of events like pandemics, et cetera, just aren't frequent enough for that. Like meteorologists have picked up simulation-based modeling for like decades now because I think they they have a high-frequency kind of outcome that they would like to predict and model. That's right. And That's I think right. maybe they That's would right. adopt these kind of more, you know, sort of empirical, empirical simulation-based kind of models because of that. Just That's one right. quick thing. Um, marketers stole the concept of agent-based model. It comes from statistical physics. It comes from where how particles react when in an environment. And by the way, as Adi probably knows, given his math background as well, the big change in the field of physics was, you go back to the time of Einstein, it was all theoretical physics. And then what happened was, not saying theoretical physics still isn't really important, but then it got to a world where there was a legitimate field of physics that was simulation-based. And that's why marketers took it from theoretic, from statistical and quantum physics of molecules hitting each other, and it's the same concept. It's at that time that marketers said, we don't need mathematically closed-form solutions. Maybe simulations can tell us something. All right, fellas. Well, that's been Q1 here in this very special edition of Wharton Money. Well, we still have three You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Some combination of the hosts are with us every week. This week, everybody's here. Buddy Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. This is Kate Massey. In fact, we're sitting in front of each other in flesh and blood for the first time since March 2020. Center City, Philadelphia, everyone's vaccinated. Some of us have even tested recently again on campus. Windows open, fans booster, blowing. Booster shots, even booster. some of us. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Who's got a booster? I got a booster. <gasps> what? I do. I'm an educator, and it was after. It was over six months We're after all my educators. Shot. Go get your booster. Jeez, I didn't know that was a possibility. Boost away, my friend. This is a little public service announcement. I didn't know that. You guys held that back from me. That's good news. All right. Well, listen, speaking of news from others, we'd love to hear from you guys. Reach out to us. At W Moneyball on Twitter is the most immediate way to get our attention. At W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We retweet. We tweet about sports analytics. And we love to hear from you. Questions, suggestions, criticism, whatever you got. You can also send us email. We have a mailback of sorts. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read them all. We get as many as we can on the air. And we love hearing from you. Gentlemen, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Game six of the World Series is tonight. The Braves are up 3-2. They're going back to the home field advantaged Houston Astros tonight. If they don't take game six, they'll go to a game seven tomorrow. What do y'all think so far, you baseball people? This is the very end of the season. How has the World Series been for you? Anything jumping out at you? Well, I asked my universal question about momentum. So here it is again. Let's imagine that the Astros win game six. Okay, so obviously it goes to game seven. They will have won games five and six. 
Okay. They are the better team in terms of the regular season. So we have that. Um, they, won, they were the better team. No, no, they were the better team going in. Yeah. So, hey, hold on, let's do that for a second. The records you quoted are 162 game records. Correct. What do you really? If you okay, I'm, I'm not going to let you have an exponential decay. I'm just going to restrict you to using a certain portion of the season. What portion of the season do you grab to get the most diagnostic win percentage? Well, I think I said this last week on our show. When you look at the last 30 games of the Astros and the Braves. They were, I think it was the seventh, seventh and, eighth. and eighth best teams in baseball. So neither one of them was hot okay. at the end, but they the, were almost identical. Okay, helpful. It help, helpful is an interesting window. I don't know what the optimal window is, and I'm asking you. I'm not going to let you use exponential decay, but I'm going to let you use some subset. Uh, do you I'm, use the whole season, or do you grab a subset? Uh, in general, I would use the whole season, but not in this case. Atlanta uh, has been widely publicized that they changed the way they play the game. They did not shift in the beginning of the season, and they're shifting very heavily now. That's crazy to me. I thought everybody shifted. Uh, they were the one of the few teams that did not shift, huh. and now that has become a principal part of their, their playbook. Listen, it works. It's just what? undeniable. Why were they so slow to get there? Well, you know, you're the behavioralist. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I honestly, the schedules are unbalanced. And I'm not sure. I, I personally don't change. I'll, I'll stick with 53 to 47 or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the home field advantage. I won't change my evaluation at all based on the regular season record. Yeah, I, I, In this case or in general? In general, no, I, I, I would maybe, maybe, in extreme if it, cases. maybe if it was you know the Dodgers with their 106 win team, yeah, and we have but a 95 dominant, versus 88 when the schedules are so unbalanced anyway. When you have okay. a dominant okay. starting pitcher, and I don't think either team is looking has a has okay. the equivalent of okay. So what I'm Jacob hearing, DeGrom. what I'm hearing is 53 47 before we get this is assuming the Astros win Game Six. We're setting up Eric's question now. Eric wants to introduce the possibility of momentum. One of his favorite drums to beat. Okay, Eric, you got fifty three forty seven without momentum. Where are you going? I'm going to where I was before we did all this analysis. Sixty forty. Wow. wow, that seems heavy for baseball. Yeah, I'm going to fifty three to forty seven. That far. I am. I thought I'm going to go I'm back just, towards fifty fifty, Mister Coin Flip. <laughs> I thought you were going the other direction. No, no. no I mean, I, I home field. I mean, there's some structural stuff to home field. Yeah, you go last. Let's start with you that. You go last. I'm and not you, sure. I mean, the dimensions of the park, we've seen that be very important. Knowledge and, and familiarity with the dimensions of the park is important. It's hard to know if I'd be any different from 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 Shane. Maybe a little bit 55. Yeah, I'm going 55. Me and Adi are sitting in the middle. Me and Adi at 55. Yeah. Okay, this is you – know, what do you think about tonight? And, and then tell me about the pitchers and tell me about, you know, how big a knock was it for the Braves to have their game one pitcher, who I assume would have gone at least one more time and maybe, you know – the way they use pitchers late in the season, maybe more than one more time. How big a knock was it for them to lose that guy? Oh, yeah, substantial. I mean, Charlie, yeah. you're talking about Charlie Morgan yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah substantial. I mean, I think that's a substantial blow to them. I mean, you know, I, 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 they certainly that does impact kind of their series, the probability of them winning the whole series. Whether, you know, how he would have been used, whether he would have been used in games five, six, or seven is kind of a, a hard thing to sort of know you know, kind of counterfactually, but well, I let think me add another important. dimension. Here are the two starting pitchers tonight. So tonight it's Max Freed. He was 14 and seven with a 3.04 ERA this season. No slouch P- there. P- pitching for who, Aaron? For the Braves. And then for the Astros, it's Luis Garcia, who is 11 and eight with a 3.30 ERA. So very similar. So now Garcia's on short rest, I believe, right? That's what the ESPN front page tells me. 
Okay. That's yeah. well, that's going to cut down his his odds for the I feel like well. I've seen both these guys both get both pitch well and get knocked around in these playoffs. So <laughs> I don't both, really know. They're both 0 and 1. Freed right now, by the yeah. way, I assume this is for the World Series, has a 10.8 ERA. Yeah, he's used the game too. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And Garcia has a 2.45 ERA. Oh my goodness. That doesn't sound very good. I'm, 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 I'm revealing my preferences here. I can't help but pull for the Braves. Where are you guys on who you're pulling for? Oh, definitely the Braves. Right. All I can say is I still can't get over the fact that there are two National League teams in the World Series. Well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> But let me continue with our with our odds here. That is, that is right. And so, yeah. Difficult. So let's forget the VIG for just a second on the betting line. Do you agree? Let's imagine both games were roughly half-half, right? So the Braves so – the Astros' chances of winning is a quarter. They have to win game six and game seven. So you have a three-to-one odds, right? And so right now, if there were no VIG, the, Ast- the Braves should be minus 300, and the, Astro- and the Astros should be plus 300. Well, right now, it's about m- – just to show you how different it is, and I consider this pretty different. The Braves are about minus 230, and the Astros are plus 195. Now, I understand there's a VIG, but even if you do the math on that, let's say the Astros you have at plus 200 – that's a lot more than twenty five percent. It's a third. Does the market do markets? Does the betting market love momentum more or less than Eric Bradlow does? <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, there's so much vig here. You can't even get an accurate, but, but, a decent you know, estimate of the probability. I'm just saying well, that I, I, you I, can I get think, enough estimates. To I, what's think far betting, away from 25%. I think betting markets in general do favor momentum or do kind of they have like a momentum to them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or, or mm-hmm. at least bet towards momentum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, here's where you can, I don't say put your money where your mouth is, but if the Astros win game six, you will see the, if the Astros win game six, I think you're going to see them at minus 140 or 150 yeah. for yep. game seven. Yep. Wow. Okay. What about the Braves? Which, by the way, is 60%. What have yeah. you seen the Braves doing this series? So the Braves, it's interesting because they began the season almost conventionally unanalytic, and they're ending it with the the strongest moves analytically with the Shifts and the and the use of the reliever core. The starting with with a reliever and continuing the whole game with the reliever. That that is modern analytics in a nutshell. Were they forced into it because of the Morton injury? Yeah, teams? they don't have enough starters. Yeah, and I mean and I, that's I've, what makes the World yeah. Series so unpredictable because what wins 106 games is not what wins the World Series. Yeah. It's it, it's a little disappointing to me that a great team like the Dodgers or the, the Giants or even the Rays are not here. It's disappointing, but that's talk about endemic. That's endemic. Yeah, baseball, I'd, rather, right? I'd rather have it this way than in basketball, where it's like, yeah, okay, we 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 know at the start of the playoffs who's going to be in the finals. I guess <laughs> we'll just kind of go through the motions mm-hmm. until yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the unpredictability of it, but all right. So uh, we got some good baseball. We're going to wrap it up this time next week. We will be post baseball. That means that this is the last of the four season moment that we have in kind of the. Month we can of start talking off season. <laughs> Collective bargaining. You, yeah, you had a you had a, a, a an interesting question from a listener. Yeah, it's actually not a listener. It's one of my favorite bloggers. His name is Freddie DeBoer. Ah, okay. um, he's a literary guy, and he just popped out this baseball question, which was really surprising and a good one. So he's a blogger, but not a sports blogger. He's a writer, not a sports blogger, and all okay. of a sudden he talks baseball. And I would love when 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 <laughs> okay. my interests intersect. So he asks a fascinating question: If you have a reliever who no matter where you bring him in the game with runners on, number of outs, bases loaded, bases empty, that reliever will give up one run, exactly one run. You can use them over and over again within a game. You can use them six innings or one innings, but they will always give up one run. So conventionally, that's a ERA of nine, and that would argue this is not even a replacement level pitcher. 
But obviously, because of dynamic usage, you probably could get value out of this player. So the question is, the opening question is, would you have them on your roster? Give up a roster spot for it. And if you agree that you should have them on the roster, what would be their approximate value? That's what I was going to say, too. That's the other part. And so the replacement value for that strategy turns out to be not much more than a game or two. I bet you it's high for my strategy. Your strategy, it becomes complicated because – Bases loaded, no one on. I mean, bases loaded, nobody out. Bases loaded, one out. Uh, runner second, third, one out, no outs. These are the situations where you're you're expected to give up well more than a run, and so you want to bring this guy in. They don't happen that up that often. And the real question is, if they happen in the first inning or second inning, are you going to take out your starter at this point? So there's a usage issue. So I actually did the analysis for both questions with a dynamic thing, and it basically comes up between between two and three wins above average over the course of the season if you use the method that Shane was talking about. Your method comes out to be somewhere between one and two because you win most of those games. Now, is that a valuable so, amount of value well, for a pitcher? Turns out it's a lot. Well, yeah, that's a this, lot this for a not, relief pitcher. This yeah. is not unrelated, by the way, to our COVID discussion. Did, if I knew I had such a player, would there be an impact on other pitchers I bring in? Now, my guess is you didn't look at that. I'm not saying you should have. But again, it's back to this same issue that if I knew I could use this pitcher to get me to a 5-2 to two lead after seven innings, I would. this other pitcher's value might change depending now I know I've got this other pitcher. I understand those are going to be second and third order effects, but it's going to have to be something. So I think the real question is if you're a GM, we all want this pitcher. The question is how much are we willing to pay for it? And I actually would argue they're worth a pretty fat salary. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I don't think you can. I mean, it's it's entirely hypothetical, but you can't put a price on that kind of certainty. Like this deterministic, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a run no matter what. <laughs> right. Exactly I mean, it would, one it would, run. It would, it would be priceless, essentially. Uh, but interesting. I mean, so you're going, for, that's, I mean, you're going for super value. It doesn't exist. So but, I would argue it's worth a lot. I'm not sure it's worth it's worth that much, but you're, you're right. It's with that kind of low variance. Variance has value and low variance has almost infinite value. All right, fellas, let's talk about a few other sports. We'll hold football for Q3 and dive into both NFL and college there. But a couple notes around other sports. One, Eric's kind of always like it's like this parallel processing thing that happens. No matter what other sports, no matter what season of the year, he's running a program in his head that says expected number of majors among the big three right now. (laughs) That's true. So what's the latest update, Eric? Well, they're all stuck at 20. (laughs) And so because they're not playing this week, but. I don't see any scenario where Federer wins another. He's he's now injured again, and he's going to come back. He's going to probably try to play Australia. But again, someone his age, and he's played some great matches, he can't win seven matches against elite players. He just can't anymore. So I think he's going to get to 20. Odds? If I had to make you a bet, what would you give me? Will you take over 20? And uh, I take I'm going to take over 20, and you take he stays at 20. What do you give I me? I would give you, I think I'd give you 10 to 1 odds. I heard bigger than that, so you've backed off a little bit. Well, no, I don't want to lose. I have also, I don't want to now lose. Now he puts his money, money where his mouth is. I, I could give you 20 to 1 odds. I would be okay yeah, with 20, that. Step up to 20, Eric. You, I, were, you were talking 20. I would be okay with that. Okay. But I was talking about something different, where if you would ask me three months ago before the U.S. Open, the odds that Djokovic would have the most majors when his career is over, I would have said the odds were probably 85 to 90%. Yeah, right. And let me say why I would have said that. Because Nadal's now injured some. Nadal didn't win the French. Matter of fact, he was beaten by Djokovic at the French. And I was thinking Nadal would win three or more, four more French Opens, which gets him to 23 or 24, which at least gives him a shot. I've now changed my tune. 
Medvedev, Medvedev, sorry, manhandled Djokovic at the U.S. Open. Djokovic, who it's pretty clear he's not vaccinated from his statements. He's not sure he's going to play Australia because he would have to quarantine for two weeks because he's not vaccinated. Okay, so now he doesn't win Australia. And by the way, that's the major he's won the most. So he doesn't win that one. Then all of a sudden, now maybe, by the way, Nadal's now the favorite if he doesn't play. Now we've got the French. I'm still going to take Nadal at the French. So maybe Nadal's a 21 or 22 after this French. Now Djokovic hasn't won the U.S. Open. He hasn't won the Australian. He hasn't won the French. Now all of a sudden, we're back to the grass court season where Djokovic is not the best grass court player. I'm now saying I'm probably going to lower it to 50% that Djokovic ends up with the most majors. I think I'd put Nadal at an equal number, assuming Nadal comes back healthy. But, I mean, Nadal has not – so, I mean, I, the way I see it, is, I mean, is way less sophisticated. Jo, of three of the four majors, Djokovic has – you know, assuming both are uninjured and both are playing, Djokovic has a greater chance of winning three out of the four majors than Nadal. Uh, it's certainly true on the hard courts and probably on grass. On the U.S. Open, I'm actually not sure which one of them has won okay. more U.S. Opens. Because Nadal – so I'm hearing at least 2.5 to 1.5 for Djokovic. I think that's fair. Absolutely fair. So you're basically somehow bad, but but maybe you're you're kind of giving extra certainty to Nadal's French thing. So that's more. Oh, I'm giving long. a longer birth to it. I see. Okay. All right. Well, I think Eric has managed somehow remarkably to make the majors run interesting again for us. And so thank you for that, Eric. It gives us something to look forward to as we roll into the Australian Open, which is just a couple of months away Only now. Only a couple of months away. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM. We do it every week. This week, we're doing it in person. In person for the first time since March 2020. Whole group is here. Adi Shane, Eric Cade, Center City, Philadelphia, vaccinated, boosted, 50% of us are boosted, little cheaters, little little sneaks. We got windows open, and we're having a sports analytics conversation. We got an hour to go. Rolling into Q3, a little football time, fellas. College football, have I drugged you guys sufficiently into college football? Are you have a deeper engagement in college football? Anything jumping out to you last weekend, Michigan-Michigan State? I know Shane was enjoying the Michigan-Michigan State game. That was a heck of a game. No, I mean, I, I like college football. I mean, I, I – I consider it very different from professional football because no lead is safe and things scoring happens very quickly. But no, that was an incredibly exciting game. Good fun. I think that was a massively impactful game. I mean, again, by the way, I, I maybe you know we have to look. Jim Harbaugh again losing a massive game, and they had they should have won that game. There were so mm-hmm. many opportunities yep. they had to win that game, and now you know Michigan State. I mean, they're not great, but they're beating everybody. And again, they have one major game remaining now, which is Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, some way, if they beat Ohio State, they have to go to the college football playoffs. They have to. Oh, yeah. There won't be any question about that if they do that. Now, whether they'll do it or not, I mean, I think that's going to be a big line when it comes around because the power models still don't love Michigan State. But um, if they got through that, sure, absolutely, they'd be in. No question. I think what it also suggests is that when we talked about this last week. I think again we're we're back to the. I don't see how you can predict less than one Big Ten team in this college football playoffs. If there will be at least one, is there a scenario where there's two? 
it would it would take massive impressiveness from I don't even see how there's two because I think Ohio, now I don't see how there's two because I don't think they're going to take two one loss teams and if Michigan State went undefeated I think they would be the only one from the Big Ten I don't see two Big Ten teams I don't see because this Ohio State already has that loss on the record because Ohio State already yeah. has if there were two yeah. undefeated ones and Michigan State beat Ohio State and but Ohio State was still two or three in the power rankings yes but under this scenario it would be a second loss for Ohio State they're not Alabama. They're not getting in with two losses. I don't think Michigan, a one-loss Michigan, can Michigan run the table and Michigan State run the table? Because they both they don't play in the Big Ten championship game. That's correct. That's correct. Well, then there is still a hope because if Michigan State, if they beat Ohio State and didn't make it to, they didn't win the East, but they beat Ohio State. Correct. Interesting. So Michigan State goes undefeated, and Michigan ends up with one loss, one really close loss yeah. to Michigan State. Yeah, right. Could I see it? It's not impossible. That's that you're asking Ohio State to lose twice more. Um, which, I am. So, and this is the thing: if you look at them, if you look at the power rankings, including Massey Peabody, Ohio State is really crushing it these days. And there's a top three that is so far beyond anybody else. It's an unusual feature of this season that you've got these three teams that are up around plus thirty, and then the next tier doesn't start until like plus eighteen, and then there's just a rash of them. So, for example, here. How far do you think you have to go below? So the third place team in Massey Peabody would be something like Ohio State, and they'd be favored by something like 13 points over Texas A&M, I think is number four. How far down the rankings do you have to go before Texas A&M is favored by 13 over that team? 30. I was going to say like you'd 25 or 30. Yeah, 20, 20 25. You yeah. have to drop 35 or 36 more spots. Wow. You have to get down to the 40th right, team. 40th. Like Louisiana Damn. Lafayette, the gap between Ohio State and number four A and M is the same as the gap between number four A and M and number forty. And just to be clear, nine and zero Oklahoma is clearly not in your top three because top three has to be Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State. That's right. That's right. Eight and zero Cincinnati we know is not in your top. They're three. all smashed. In, this is the thing. All those guys are smashed in there together in the mid teens. It's this. It's this crunch of teams that we don't know which one of them is better, and then just this massive gap to the top three. Can you just speak to us on what basis? <clears throat> Is Ohio State that great? Like, what makes them statistically? I'm talking uh, about an opinion. Forget uh, their one loss. What they have a loss. We understand that. What in the data suggests that they're 13 points better than Michigan or Michigan their, State or their, their offense? They've, they've got, okay. they're, 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 they're just racking up stats. They haven't played the best teams. Of course, we're norming for the quality of team as best right. we can. But their offense, people think that they would give. Any, you know, people are excited about the prospect of maybe they face Georgia and their great defense because it's not clear who else could stop them at this point. So, and then we'll and we'll get to actually realize at least how well they play against Michigan State and Michigan over the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're still not. I mean, a lot. Some people still aren't convinced on how good those teams are. Um, they had a heck yeah. Of no, a- I, I guess that won't say much to uh, whether or not they could potentially beat Georgia, but it will at least help to justify or not justify their current. Yeah, that's ranking. right. That's right. We need to yeah. see we need to see some impressive performance to be consistent with that. So the first playoff committee seeds are coming out tonight we're recording this on tuesday afternoon this evening just a few hours we'll find out how the playoff committee seeds these folks this year the other hallmark of this year is this disconnect between the polls and the power rankings so you get things like you know cincinnati's number two Cincinnati power rankings like cincinnati but they're in a different category than everybody else you know michigan state is up there and this just the polls don't match the power rankings in a way that is more dramatic than usual and i think it really complicates the committee's job so for example when we've modeled the committee in the past we don't worry about ap rankings it doesn't come into play 
but it makes it very hard to model them this year because what are they going to do? Are they going to chuck Cincinnati out or Michigan State bump them way down? Because, I mean, Michigan State might be number 20 on the average power ranking, but they're number whatever, four in the AP. So there's a real political issue there that we haven't had in the past. Right now, if you look, I don't know what all goes into FPI's model, FPI's ESPN's model, which we tend to like a lot. Right now they have Georgia. This isn't a forecast for tonight's playoff rankings, but it's a forecast for who makes the playoff. Georgia at 93%, just, you know, they're going to make it basically unless they surprisingly lose two games between now and then. Alabama OU in the 60s, Cincinnati Ohio State in the 50s. Well, that's my question to you. So let's suppose we look at the FPI power rankings. There's five teams in the above 50%. Tonight, we're going to see some rankings. Yeah. Which of those five teams... Obviously, it's not going to be Georgia. They're in, as of now. Alabama is going to be in the top four. Come on. I think so, but they have that well, loss, and people it, pay a little too much well, attention. So okay, Ohio we, State. Can we just so kind of – I just want to know who of the five teams – there's five of them. Which four of them do you think are going to be the four as of tonight? It's a great question. You know, you keep pointing out that they're, they have this loss, and people – I'll quote you – pay too much attention to the loss. Yeah. Well – what are you trying to do with the playoff first? No, are you rewarding what they – I mean, they yeah. lost. They made some bad plays. They did some terrible things. I don't know. I don't even watch the game. They I don't even know I don't even know who they lost to. Uh, who did they lost to Texas A&M. To Texas A&M. I mean, does that matter? I mean, when a, t- when a great team loses, yes, it might not change your forecast of their power ranking in the future, but – like the MVP, it's awarded to, awarded to the team, the player who was the best last this, year, this, this, not this, who will be the best next year in by forecast terms. And I'll just point out that you were bemoaning last segment that the poor Dodgers aren't in the World Series. <laughs> they <laughs> lost, dude. That's right. I'm, they I'm, lost. I'm just bemoaning it from you're entertainment bemoaning it because, value. That's you're bemoaning right. it because you feel like they would have been a better team to watch. Yeah. Because they are in fact a better team. Okay, but I wouldn't so, change so, it. So I, <clears throat> this is a you know a classic debate. It comes up every year. It's most deserving versus best. And we analytics folks tend to worry about power models and that comes down to best. These are predictive models, but I, you're asking a very reasonable question and I have a pretty strong position on it. I think it's, I think as much as possible should be determined on the field. I think conference championships should matter. And, and even though I'm an analyst, I, I kind of feel we've gone too far in the direction of rewarding what we consider to be best and not enough to what happens on the field. So this is why, by the way, I, I'm a big supporter of the eight-game playoff. And let me say why. I know they're not going to win. They have no chance. But if Wake Forest goes undefeated, they're in a legitimate conference, semi-legitimate this year. Semi-legitimate. Okay. But I'd like Mm. Wake Forest to get their shot. Oregon, who I'm pretty sure it was Oregon that beat Ohio State. That's right. That's right. I'd like Oregon to get its shot. Notre Dame didn't lose a great game, but they've had some decent wins. They, I'd like them to get their shot. I'd like all of those teams to get their shot. And eight's about right. I understand. It's like, well, what about nine versus eight? Okay, well, forget about that. There are a bunch of teams here that are going to get no shot to win the national championship. And my view is Oregon deserves a shot if they win out. Wake Forest deserves a shot if they win out. Notre Dame probably deserves a shot. I, you know I believe Cincinnati deserves a shot. And all of them may win out and have no chance to win the national championship. They at least, based on their on-field performance, they deserve a chance. So they get blown out by 30 in the first game. Okay, give them a shot. I can't disagree with that at all. And it would it would make the conference more meaningful. And I just, I, I mean, great. Let's seed them however you want to seed them. But make the things, make the regular season, make the conference championships matter. Let's come back to the question of who we think is going to be in the playoff. And I, we, we have a model. We don't love the model because this year of all years, the polls are so different than the power models. If you just look at these, how do you think it's going to shake out? And 
I have a hard time believing that they won't look not very far past the one loss record. If I had to guess a four, I'm going to go Georgia, Cincinnati, Michigan State, and OU. I'm going to go with the undefeated. Well, I want to kind no of No Alabama. No, I'm, I'm, in the top four, I'm going with the undefeated. You're talking I'm, about the playoffs. I'm, predi- I'm predicting the playoff. I'm doing it off my head, not with the model. The playoff. So again, Georgia, Cincinnati, Michigan State, and OU? Yeah. Probably well, in again, that order. The mandate of the seeding that they're putting out tonight, is it? Is this sort of like if the season ended this week, Supposedly, yes. who would be in Correct. the playoffs? As opposed, so they're not doing any kind of forks. They're not That's trying right. to do what we're trying to do or what the FBI is trying to do, That's which right. is forecast actually who's going to be there at the end of the season. Correct. And, and how so much that almost has to be on their win loss records as opposed to something else. Well, right? no, the quality of the wins. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but it doesn't always shake out to be quite this neat. I mean, we have four undefeated teams at the top, all with some decent wins under their belt. Yeah. So let me just ask a question. Let's suppose that is the four. Let's suppose it is. If any, obviously, if Georgia goes undefeated, but does this imply for Cincinnati? Let's assume they're in the top four, maybe even second. If they win out, there's no way. I understand some of those wins may not be pretty, but if they win out, are they in? If they see them that way this week, likely. But what's true is since he doesn't have many good games in front of them, and committee knows that, they can build that into their positioning right now well, if Cincinnati win if you see them two now and they win the rest of their games how can you not put them in then don't because, see them two now no no I don't agree with that because they're recognizing the quality of the wins they've had and they're going to stay open to other teams having quality wins going forward Cincinnati doesn't have a chance to do much against whoever they have left even SMU which was going to be their best future game lost this past so weekend. you don't view it I just I see the way I view it is a little bit different I'm not saying I disagree with you but here's how I view it I almost feel like a contract you're making a contract with Cincinnati that if they if they were ranked second on Eric, it, you're not a no, but no, they win all they're of their not, games. They're the most accomplished now. They're not necessarily the most accomplished in six weeks. You, you, you have to look at it in terms other of other things. Happen. No, it's, it's Cincinnati versus a, kind of like a small field. And what they're basically saying is that, that some member of that small field has a strong possibility of rising up. We just don't know who it is yet and, and crossing them. And so I, I think they're they're two just because they went out they don't have a they don't that doesn't guarantee them anything because somebody in that top group is going to knock off another person in that top group and that's going to push them higher than Cincinnati. All right, guys, uh, we'll find out a little bit. It's it's, it's kind of silliness in some ways, but it does have implications for how things go because it's not a contract, but there is some inertia to those rankings, and so it does have inertia is a better word than a contract. By the way, quickly, who did Oregon lose to? Like what makes Oregon less deserving than it's the like Ohio State Stanford team they or beat? somebody that shouldn't have lost to? Oregon. Okay, but just to be clear, if Oregon ends up with one loss and Ohio State ends up with one loss, people what talk do we about do then? people talk about this because obviously Oregon beat Ohio State and in way, Ohio State the way and without their best player, one of the best players in the country, their their defensive their edge rusher. Um, the the way I think the committee has used this in the past is that when the teams are relatively closely evaluated otherwise they use it as a tiebreaker but if they're not otherwise close they're not going to use it as a tiebreaker and i think that's utterly reasonable i mean we know too much about yeah. how transitivity doesn't hold to put everything yeah and in your and mind just, ohio state that, and oregon the, even yeah. if they both went out are not close enough that that tiebreaker is going to come is, into play it's worth contrasting <laughs> with the nfl because the, the nfl obviously does use head-to-head as the first tiebreaker, as opposed to some kind of strength yeah. of schedule, but it's a much more it's balanced algorithmic. strength of schedule. That's right. So it's not exactly it's That's not right. the same context. But also consider consider who Ohio State closes with. So they just beat a very decent Penn State team. 
Um, next weekend they're playing I mean, week after next, I think it's Michigan state. And then Thanksgiving weekend, they're usually playing Michigan. So that is a heck of a finish while Oregon's over there playing, you know, who God knows who from the, from the pac 12. And so I think it's, it's very likely that if they do both win out, they'll be considered pretty distinct, maybe distinct enough that that head to head. I'm not saying this won't be controversial. The other big question is where people, where they put Cincinnati, because everyone's dying to know how the committee is going to think about Cincinnati. Um, so even though I don't think it's a contract, it will matter. All right. Real quickly, a few notables from this weekend, pretty decent weekend in college football. One Wake Forest, Eric's favorite Wake Forest. They're going to Chapel Hill, number 10 in the country, Eric. How much do you think they're favored to be, to be the, the Tar Heels in Chapel Hill this weekend? Wake Forest is number 10? Yeah. You're Wake Forest Demon Deacons. I'm trying to decide if they're favored. They're playing in North Carolina. Oh, four. They're two and a half point underdogs, Eric Bradlow. They're underdogs. Yes, yeah, they're that's underdogs. what I was saying. They're not even favored in All that right. game. How do you think number five Michigan State is is uh, expected to do against Purdue in uh, in Purdue, at Purdue, in Indiana? They have to be favored. Come on. By how much? I mean, it's number five team against Purdue. Who are the Boilermakers? This is number five team. They just beat Michigan last week. It must be a big line. Don't you Six. reckon? Yeah, I'm going to guess. I was going to I was thinking seven. It's three. It's oh. three points. These. This is what's crazy about this season. We see a lot of these things. We had a couple a couple weekends ago. We had a couple of top 10 teams. Just because that's Hold the Massey Peabody line? No, this is the oh, betting, line. betting line. We had a couple of top 10 teams two weeks ago playing unranked opponents, and they were underdogs. This is how out of step the polls are this year because of all the craziness a couple other notables probably the best game of the weekend auburn going into college station that's number 12 auburn against number 12 a&m here i am quoting poll numbers after saying how whack they are auburn brian harson keeps he's like brand new coach down there in sec i'm kind of pulling for the guy he's got him playing decent ball big game against a&m auburn's going in four and a half point underdogs on that game one i think that might be interesting to keep an eye on this fearsome Ohio State team we're talking about that's supposedly so good. They're going into Nebraska, who had a real trouble this season. Scott Frost, is he on the hot seat? Who knows? He should be doing better. They've lost a lot of close games. Ohio State's favored by 15. They should win by 15, but stranger things have happened. It'd be a is, that, fun- is that your reverse lock of the week? It's <laughs> <laughs> my reverse lock of the week. It's one I'll keep an eye on, you know, because it's one of those games, if they happen, it'd be so, it'd be so much yeah. fun for Nebraska if they did that. And Ohio State has a record of going on the road in the Big Ten and losing games they're not supposed to lose. Now, maybe that was an Urban Meyer thing. I don't know. But I would love, uh, frankly, I'd love to see it happen this weekend. All right, guys, that's a quick run through the college football side. Let's talk about the pro football side. Well, we can just transition with Urban Meyer continuing to lose games he's not supposed to lose. <laughs> are, they, are they supposed to win any games well, this year? Well, perhaps they shouldn't win that many games, but he certainly doesn't seem to be helping. He's, you know, this is one of the great things about sports is you get to pull against people and you're not really supposed to pull against people in the, in life. And you can kind of really work out your, your, your angst by having some, some, some sports, you know, anti-heroes. And he's, he's one for me in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I find it very easy to cheer against as well. As well I, think, I think the big news in the NFL right now, of course, is, is the number of injuries that just recently happened. I mean, the first, I mean, the biggest news, while we always talk about running backs not being that valuable, there is one that we've talked about that's head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, that's he Derek Henry of the Titans. Competing for the MVP before this happened. Correct. He now has a foot issue there. This might be a Jones fraction, but he's out for the season. And I heard he might be able to come back for the playoffs, but yeah, definitely. Okay, he's yeah. out for a significant period yeah. of time, and that's a huge loss uh, for the Titans. Of course, I mean, maybe you could decide whether it's a huge loss or not. The Saints, who unfortunately just beat the Buccaneers this weekend, Jameis Winston's now yeah. out for the season. Torn ACL, MCL issues, etc. Who's playing quarterback for them now? 
Trevor Simeon is the backup because Taysom Hill is also injured at the moment. Jeez. Now, Taysom Hill is going to come back eventually, and then they'll decide whether Trevor Simeon's going to be their quarterback or Taysom Hill. But they only had two quarterbacks on their roster for that game. Yeah. If, if, for example, Trevor Simeon had gotten hurt also in that game, I'm not sure who would have lined up at quarterback. They asked the Peyton Saints. about it, and he said Alvin Kamara, but I don't know if he was being serious or not. <laughs> well, no, they may have run everything out of the, uh, what do they call it, the wild. The wildcat, yeah. yeah. They yeah. might have. Um, and, of course, you know, for the Buccaneers, it's, you know, he's been out for four or five weeks. He played like a couple plays. Gronk has been out for a long mm-hmm. period of time. But I just look at the NFL, and I look, this is the most exciting for me. NFC I've seen in a long, long time. I could make a very good argument that any of the following five teams could win the NFC. The Packers, that means they're seven and one. And mm-hmm. they just yeah. beat the Cardinals. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're legitimate. The Bucks, obviously, they've got yeah. the GOAT, so they can clearly win the NFC and they're the defending champs. The he's Ram- an old goat. What? He's, he's an, an old, old goat, goat, but he's the goat. He's been an old goat for the whole time this show's been on the air. <laughs> the Rams can definitely win the NFC. The Cowboys, despite not having Dak Prescott, had an impressive win. I think it was against the Vikings. Yep. And then the Cardinals. And I haven't even mentioned some other teams. You know, the Saints aren't bad. The you know, there's some other decent teams. But I've just named the Packers, Bucks, Rams, Cowboys, and Cardinals. Those are five teams, by the way, each with two losses or less. I mean, right now, the Packers. The Rams, the Cowboys, and the Cardinals all have fewer losses than the Bucs. And you saw who the Rams just picked up. They got, got oh, Von, they got Von they traded for Vaughn Miller yesterday. Right. Is that like a baseball move? Is, is, is football becoming like a baseball league where they trade midseason for guys to get them over the edge? Uh, well, I mean, certainly, uh, I think that's kind of the, the Rams, I mean, have epitomized the win now kind of move. I actually think they're, it's an intriguing sort of like strategy because over the last few years we've been talking about them for two or three years of like basically trading all of their draft picks for kind of veteran talent yeah but and we're always like oh they're gonna pay for it later you know judgment <laughs> right. day's coming and probably it will because they literally i don't think have a first rounder for the next like three or four drafts the, the but, 20 the 2030s are gonna be bad in los angeles yeah. but, but, but we also talk often about how drafting is such an imprecise science well that's what, what that's what what if they've made kind of a decision that like you know, they would rather kind of trade. I mean, you know, draft picks have a real benefit to them because if they turn out to be good, they're very cost controlled. But what if that? What if the Rams have just basically decided we will trade kind of the chance of somebody cost controlled for the certainty of somebody we actually know well, is good? I knew you were going there, and that's the flaw because there's no certainty in sports. Free agency does not give certainty, and it's a mistake teams make again and again. It's certainly more certain than the NFL draft, the rookies, but there's no certainty of free agency. We've seen lots of examples. Well, this isn't free agency, but like you, well, you mean veteran players yeah, are yeah, no, yeah. but veteran players are decidedly more certain than draft picks. Are they? I, I'm going to throw I, that out. More certain, in, yes. In, in, in an immediate window. More certain, yeah. yes, but not, you said certainty. and, I, and you, you're For I, more certainty, yeah, or less well, uncertainty. You said certainty, and that was, I think that's exactly the way they feel, and I think that's a mistake. I think again and okay. again, we think they're certain and they're not certain. No, and I didn't, I mean, again, let me rephrase, they're trading that there is more certainty to Von Miller being good over the next couple of years Certainly. than probably anybody they would get, even in the first at, round. But at a big it was price. a second and third rounder, actually, is what they traded. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, right. Two, two picks, two high picks, man. I mean, there's going to be a, I mean, you, you, your, your preface is all appropriate. We keep on saying there's going to be hell to pay. Yeah. You know, presumably there is, but. Well, there's two different things going on here. I mean, I think it's one's the dynamic that they clearly seem to prefer kind of veteran, more, less uncertainty of veterans to 
there's more uncertainty of draft picks. There's also when you do already have a good team and a quarterback that's aged, win now does make a lot okay, of sense. Okay, so let's play with that for a second. So maybe what if what if they turned around in four years from now after having won a Super Bowl and kind of played out these yeah. senior guys, they reversed strategy and said, now we're going to create draft picks. Now having, you know, maxed out yeah. this era and 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 got some you know trophies to show for it we're gonna flip strategies and you guys the problem of you guys the other 31 teams is you stay in too narrow a band of approaches yeah and we're gonna time bear no and I, I think as a fan i i've always said like i would rather a team go from worst to first to worst to first than okay. like oscillate around eight and eight like every well, year and then one question shane is can you can you do better than just tank in terms of generating draft picks if you want to create draft picks they've just destroyed their future drafts maybe that's more palatable if they have some levers they can pull to create draft picks in the future presumably yeah. by trading away players for yeah draft. no no that's right and, and as well they don't have to necessarily even look like they're tanking if they can get good value i mean because it's not like they have no draft picks they just only have late round draft picks if they're smart enough to actually get good value out of late round draft picks they can probably like be not actually abysmal during that kind of transition phase right 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 eric you've focused on the nfc so far and that's fine and we don't need to break out everything right now but i am curious especially because um, we, we just had some national TV on this. I haven't been paying close enough attention to Patrick Mahomes, but they barely snuck out a win against the yeah. Giants to get back to 500 last night. What is the current thinking on Patrick Mahomes' performance? There's got to be something physically wrong because he was making throws. I've never seen him make bad throws. He was throwing the ball away when he would normally try to extend plays. Even the way I hate to say this, even when he wants to throw the ball out of bounds, the bat, the throws look bad. Mm-hmm. I've got to believe he's got some sort of injury that we're not hearing about. He certainly does not look like he used to. I mean, I also think strategically, I, a lot of teams I've noticed this season that played of are kind of doing what the Bucks successfully did against them in the Super Bowl, which is basically force him out of the pocket as much as possible. I mean, no quarterback... I mean, Mahomes probably does about as well as any quarterback could when throwing on the run, but no quarterback does that as well as throwing out of the pocket. And so I think they're kind of, and he does seem to have one of the other things I think is he's struggling with this year is his propensity to kind of run out of the pocket even when he doesn't need to. It, it, it has been kind of, you know, somehow, you know, increased. And so I think that's kind of like that. Th- those two combined together to to kind of see ensure some pretty. But I think the Chiefs downgrade in the AFC has made it wide open. And yeah. but I, although I will say the two teams, I was going to say, well, I think there's five teams in the NFC. I could pick any of them. I'd be shocked if it's not the bills or the Ravens coming out of the AFC. So you still I, have, you still I, have I, some chips on the Ravens. I do. Yeah. I think the bills and the Ravens, you're not the, putting a lot of probability on a Patriots run here. No, not, not, they're not best rookie quarterback <laughs> in the class. They're not good enough. They just don't have the talent. They're not no. good enough to win the AFC. I mean, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't put a lot of money on it, but uh, you know. But well, I, yeah. Eric, you've made a good case for being unusually wide open. We've had a number of seasons where it hasn't been wide open, and I think both conferences we could see a lot of things happen. It makes it fun. I think that's definitely more fun. Let's pick some games on the way out of here. Q three. I got three. I think are relatively interesting. You, you've just about convinced me that. Titans Rams is interesting, but without Henry, let's just leave that one on the sidelines. I'm going to go with three. You guys, let's all pick them up against the spread. All right. The games are Cleveland to Cincinnati, yeah. Chargers at our Eagles here in the great city of Philadelphia. And since we've been talking about Mahomes, and since we've been talking about the Packers, 
And since we picked the Packers game last week, let's do it again. Green Bay is coming into Kansas City. All right, let's start with Audie Weiner. He's on the left. Audie, Cleveland, Cleveland, Cincinnati, a division rival. The line here is Cincinnati by three. Who you got? Well, I watched Cincinnati lose to the Jets. I know you did. So uh, I'm just not going to take Cincinnati because if you lose to the Jets, that just seem, <laughs> it seems insane. So we the next, uh, yeah, the I next mean, goat. I really want to talk about this, this, uh, the second coming of, uh, of uh, the oh, great your hope quarterback, your quarterback. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think this is a fantastic conversation to discuss. Like, you know, you have the Zach Wilson and then he gets injured. He's their top draft pick. He's the quarterback of the future. They got rid of Donald for him. And now he's out for a couple of seasons. You bring this, this sixth round draft pick, you know, flitting around from team to team, nobody, and he has a, a stellar game, which forces me, which I was doing with my class, surprisingly, uh, Prussian, what do you do? How do you choose between the two options that have occurred? A rare thing has happened. What are the two possibilities? The rare, one rare thing is a mediocrity had an amazing game. We try to figure out the probability on that. The other rare thing is that a great quarterback was sitting there on the bench. Yeah. And that's another rare thing. So it's one of those two. So which is it? Good. And so I don't know I how to evaluate that. Most more data. Well, I mean, what, just, what, Zach Wilson can't come back right now anyway. Well, we'll get one more day. We're going to get one more game. One no, more game. One or, right. So, so, he, yeah. so my question okay, is, what let's is say your... he has a, 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 a – let's not, let's not go 400 yards. Let's say he has a, a – he wins a game and he, he, he's really good. What would you say to that? I mean, let's just say base rate. How likely is it that a, a, a backup quarterback who's been in the league for five years or so is, is actually – a good, really good quarterback, and better. And, and the other one is: is he, is he better than the first round? And better than the first, first round, round, the first year, first round. So, what back. would you with probability? And, and I don't have any feeling for that. And I, I did assess. I have we have two NFL former NFL players in my class. I asked them what they thought, and they they both went with their thumbs straight down. And they said, "No, Zach Wilson is back. You put him right back yeah. in." So, one, I want to celebrate that you used this example in your class, a football example. I did. We've made good progress with you, yeah. and as you said, it was prescient because this is before this past weekend. That's right. And then it happens, but it seems like it happens every year. Yeah, maybe not quite this perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, uh, a, a, a quarterback throwing 400 yards in their first start has happened exactly once. Exactly, that is true. That's it, right. do, it does. It just particular one game performance. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen stellar one game performances. We've seen untold numbers of quarterbacks come in and have flashes. And so I put we virtually thought, we nothing. Saw three backup quarterbacks have uncharacteristically good games just this past week. Okay. I mean, it wasn't just uh, it was Trevor Simeon for the and Saints, the guy for the Cowboys and Cooper Rush for the Cowboys. Right. I mean, look, it happens, but I've got I've got more money on the base rate on this one. And yeah. even though there's not any certainty on a first round quarterback, we know that. A guy that's been in the league, sixth round guy that's that's been in the league for four or five years, flashes once. But, but also, just quickly about that game, Baker Mayfield is banged up. Odell Beckham banged up. The Browns are a banged up team. I think the Bengals win that game not because they're some great team. The Browns just aren't the Browns. They're they're a banged up team. They're on the downside. I forget what they maybe they've lost two in a row, three in a row. They're just not healthy enough to win that yeah. game. I, I like. The Bengals I, I'm that taking game. the Bengals too. I actually think they are a pretty good team, but I'm taking the Bengals. All right, I'm with the Bengals as well. I'm just a big Joe Burrow fan. The mass people, but likes them a little bit better than the line. But um, I've, the Cleveland's just not pulled it together this year like they some people thought they were going to. All right, second game: our Philadelphia Eagles. The Chargers coming to town. Chargers quick out of the gate. Uh, might have been you know smoke and mirrors. Might have been high rates of conversion third and fourth down. Uh, they are favored here by two against the Eagles. Let's start with Shane. Oh, 
Yeah, take the Chargers of the Eagles. The Eagles are trash. That's a little harsh. That, that, that was not an analytical it's statement. A little, little, the harsh, Eagles are not little harsh. Eric Bradley, you're an Eagles guy. You know, I just don't think the Eagles have looked that horrible the last yeah, couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. just by the way, ESPN's matchup predictor has the Eagles as a slight, tiny, tiny, tiny favorite, 50.4% yeah. to 49.2%. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to go with the Eagles in this one. I like the Eagles at home in this game. It's hard to win road games in the NFL, and the Eagles have been playing well the last two or three weeks. I, I like the. I wouldn't bet it, but if I had to pick, I'd take the Eagles. Well, I mean, my my brain says Chargers. My heart says Eagles. There you go. Go with that heart, Adi. We're, we spend too much time in our heads. I am also going to go Eagles. I think two things are going on. I think people are too hard on the Eagles, and they're too long on the Chargers. I love the Chargers. I pull for that organization. I want them to do well. But I am on the Smoke and Mirrors crowd here. We have them 19th in the league, Philadelphia only 22nd. We actually have a decent edge on this game. We'd make them a favorite also, the Eagles. So I'm a pretty big bet. That's Of the three, that's the one. Little, that like just because of the home field advantage. Yeah, home, yeah, home field advantage. Yeah. We have them as a little bit worse yeah. team, but they get a little bit of a – we still have something on home field, even though it's Two not points? what it used to be. 2.1 points? We have it one and a half. Just, wow. But, I mean, Rufus has a more nuanced model, but just if you had to pick one number, we're going to go with one and a half. Final game, fellas. Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, they went in last week. We picked this game last week, and most folks thought they weren't going to do it, especially because Devontae Adams was out. And it goes, I think it's just an anecdote, but it's one more example of people overvaluing injuries to a single player, to a single player. Um, the Chiefs are actually favorites here. The market can't quit the Chiefs. One and a half point favorites hosting the Packers. Shane, I mean, I mean, I mean, Eric, you haven't gone first yet. The Packers are the better team. Packers are the better team. How many games in a row do the Chiefs have to play poorly? For them, yeah. people to say they're just not that good. Yeah. yeah, and you know the Packers are beating good teams. They're not just winning; they're beating good teams. I'm taking the Packers in this game. Shane, I can't quit the Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> and to answer your question, the Chiefs have to play approximately 20 bad games in a row before I'll right, stop picking fine. them. But yeah, yeah. So I'm taking the Chiefs. I have to agree with Eric in this one. I mean, I've been, I feel like people have propped up the Chiefs this entire season, and. uh and so at, the, at some point, you have to say, how much is your prior going to really drive your forecast halfway, more than halfway into the season? A lot still, I would say. And for that reason, I'm going to be on the Chiefs, too. I'm with Shane. Yeah. I actually, I want to say I backed off of him last week. I, I finally quit him last week. But in this case, I think the line is too far that way. And um, I what feel, is the line? I don't, I don't feel great about it. One and a half. Chiefs by one and a half. Chiefs by, Chiefs by one and a half. And... I mean, I think we, we show the Chiefs like by two and a half. So mm. it's not a huge edge, but it's that mm. direction. So if I had to jump on this one, I wouldn't like to. I'd rather not jump on it. But since it's on the docket, I'm going to go Chiefs and hope that Mahomes returns to form or at least three quarters form. All right, guys, that's been third quarter. That's been three quarters of sports analytics. We still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. This has been an interview segment for us since we started recording virtually during the COVID era. Today, being a little bit of a special reunion show, since we're all in person together here in Center City, Philadelphia, we thought we'd do a little something different. Take advantage of being together. Be a little reflective. We were reflective in quarter one on COVID. It's a good moment to stop and say, okay, guys, what's kind of the state of 
sports analytics. And in particular, I want to ask you a question that I got asked in an interview recently, and it's, it's more the future. Like, where, where are we now? What is the future? It's, we've been doing the show for almost eight years, coming up on eight years. And I remember when the first show first started, there were some things we could see. We saw some things. We knew what the frontiers were at that time. I think it's reasonable to stop and assess where are the frontiers now. So I was asked that question in an interview recently. What's on the frontier of sports analytics? What's next? What's the next thing in sports analytics? So I'm curious how y'all would answer that question. We're going to start with Adi. Well, I think I can probably give a canned speech on this because I think I've been asked it too. Um, I would, when I am asked what are the four pillars of, uh, of sports analytics, I always start with historical evaluation. Then we've moved past that to predictive. Then we have on-field decision-making has been a, a big thing. And the fourth is training performance analytics, how to get people to get the most out of your athletes, to get them to be the best players they can be. And that's where there's been a convergence of data and openness to, to change. And there's been a lot of promise in that direction. There's also been a little bit of quackery, particularly <laughs> in, the, in the realm of injury detection. It's holy grail. We'd all love to be able to do this. And there are lots of claims coming out that you can predict when a player is about to get injured because of things that you can measure. So we'll keep an eye on that. I think it's premature, but definitely readiness to train the idea of rest and thinking about also how do we get better with virtual technologies? We yeah. interviewed someone, uh, can't remember when we had this, but you know, how, to, how to have a quarterback go through, you know, instead of just one or two or four or 10 repetitions, but thousands in a virtual environment. Uh, hitters, I mean, we've, we've, pitchers have gotten way better because of repetition and technology, but hitters haven't had that opportunity because you can put them in a cage, but that's not the same as facing major league pitching. And we haven't figured out how to, provide them that opportunity. So I think this is the frontier for me. It's performance and training analytics. Well, I mean, I actually, I'm going to go in the direction of that quackery. I think it's actually, in, I think it's injury diagnosis <laughs> don't, and prevention. Don't short, don't short no, yeah, no, not saying, I'm not saying it's impossible. I think the things we've seen and that have been put into play already are, in my mind, far short of where we want to be in terms of quality. Oh, yeah. Well, we're, well, yeah, we're far short of where we want to be, certainly. But like, you know, I, I think in terms of like, you know, just the marriage of kind of the bio, you know, because, you know, we've got sort of two, there, there's both the biomechanical kind of data revolution that's going on right now, but there's also the sort of in-game kind of, you know, audio, like kind of video data revolution going on. And I mean, we were talking just, you know, last segment about, you know, is something wrong with Patrick Mahomes? It's subtle if there's something wrong, you know, with him, like his throwing motion, some part of his mechanics. Maybe there's a subtle injury. I think, you know, we're not far from being able to better detect kind of what he's doing at a very kind of micro level on the field with his accuracy, et cetera. And maybe tie that into some kind of, bio, you know, sort of biomechanical type, you know, situation that's going on. So that's kind of where I sort of see, you know, and I, I, you, you kind of. You know, also we're talking about like what sports that these things are mostly impactful. And I think football is going to be the one for the future. Well, that's the thing that's most interesting to me about your answer there, Shane, is because that's not new in baseball. It's not new in golf. Yeah. But it hasn't been used in sports where players are less stationary. They're not initiating the action. It's just harder to have that fine grained technological assessment in sports where players are moving all the time. No, and I, and I think baseball kind of historically always led the sort of like led the first kind of few analytical revolutions because it consisted of, you know, a lot of structural aspects of baseball are, you know, independence of players, et cetera, that lended itself to, be, you know, easier analytics. And I think baseball on the kind of injury and, and prevention side, I think is also led because baseball also consists of a lot of very repeated controlled you know, motions, whereas football, it's contact and like, you know, a lot of kind of very fast, weird motions that you, you have to be kind of tracking. So I think baseball probably, you know, is a good test ground for a lot of this stuff as well, because you do have that kind of, you know, kind of controlled repeated motion. But I think what you're saying is you expect to see more, or maybe I'm projecting, you're expecting to see the kinds of technological performance enhancing work that we've seen in baseball expand into other sports yeah. where, like, like football. Yeah, no, and I, and I think we'll probably see the biggest impacts in baseball, sports like baseball or basketball earlier, but I think they'll have the most impact in terms of injury prevention in football, where we just have that much the most injuries. Injury. So yeah, yeah, a lot more injuries. <laughs> right. 
So for me, I think it's large-scale, real-time, automatic scoring of things. I think we're going to see a lot more in AI, a lot more in motion detection, a lot more in, you know, whether it's injury detection because of the way someone's running, whether it's evaluating people because of their speed, but not, but losing real motion cameras, but doing it in a very large scale automated way. I really don't think the tools of big data science that exists in a lot of the tech firms when they're trying to understand buyer behavior have yet made their way into sports in a large scale automated way. So that's the way I think. I think we're going to be collecting so much data and so many variables that I think there's going to be a way to deal with large-scale computing there. I think understanding which variables are actually predictive of performance is going to be done in a large-scale automated way. And I'm not saying the human will play no role, but I think what will happen is you'll be able to say, I don't need to spend time looking at that 97% of those people because there's the data just suggests there's such a low probability that their performance is going to be in the level that we need. So that's what I think. As a matter of fact, that's the way I always viewed the work that I did when I've been working with sports teams. I wanted to provide them statistical models so that they could focus their energy and efforts on a small number of individuals for which the potential is extraordinarily high. And now I think with large-scale computing, video data, etc., this will be done in a large-scale automated way. Eric, could you not also kind of look at the other end of the distribution? Is it not the case that with data and computing power, it allows you to look more broadly and discover kind of some hidden gems possibly at least you filter you know you have to so go that's what i mean i mean that i don't have to use traditionally and i'll use this in whatever dimension you want biased variables which is biased against people of certain countries races etc i'm talking about eliminating that bias with using a larger set of measured variables that can be measured much more broadly and can be used and absolutely i think it's going to allow us to broaden the pool of people that get serious consideration and i think it'll be much more data oriented and i'm excited about that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all right cool Uh, my answer I've, i've got i've got two ones a little bit related to eric's i'll give you a short version related to eric's as we get all these data and especially as they become finer and finer grained the challenge is how do you sew these things back up together? And, you know, it wasn't that many years ago when we evaluated football by what happens at the end of the game. And then we, it was a big advance to do it at the play level. Great. We've got play level data. That's exciting. Well, now we have, you know, every second multiple observations for every player on the field. And so it's just kind of atomized and the challenge is how to integrate it back up. And so organizations that figure out how to sew together these very fine grained disconnected bits into meaningful measures will have an advantage. But the one I think is, more interesting, and this is a little bit of a personal drum that I've been beating for a while, and I think we're getting closer, is moving from team models that are just the sum of the parts, like linear sums, sums of the parts, like a baseball model. You know what every player's worth. You can put the probability of he's being on the field and just add up, you know, just a line- in a linear way how good the team is as a function of those parts, no interactions. Yeah. And that actually works reasonably well in baseball because play is so interdependent, so independent. In other sports, we have a sense that interactions matter more, but we don't. We haven't historically had the data that would allow us to actually assess those interactions. So what difference does it make if you have a quarterback and an especially great tight end that are able to work together in some especially productive way? Or what's the interaction between uh, two great receivers, one wide out, one slot? Is there, a, is there some benefit to having two like that? We can just we can spin out a zillion of those hypotheses. It requires a lot of data to see them. And I don't think – I think there's plenty of people into it that aren't actually there. We think these interactions exist that aren't there. But I also suspect there will be lots of interactions that are important that we don't even know about right yeah. now if we can measure them better. And I think football is such an amazing – um, sport for that because it's not just interactions between players it's interactions between the players and scheme yes. you know there's so i mean other sports have strategy kind of that's implemented you know basketball hockey soccer there are kind of some amount of scheming that's done but it's not nearly to the detail and kind of dramatic extent as football and so like i think that that kind of intera- when you think about when i think about interactions in, in, in 
football, I used to just think about, you know, quarterback, wide receiver, yeah. or running back to offensive line. And so there's player player interactions, but the scheme is so important as well. And yeah. I think that's something that I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to sort of see how kind of big data takes well, us and, and, and understanding clear, that. One of the implications is the same player will have different value for different coaches because of different systems and schemes. Well, you know, this has been true in, even in baseball as well. It's been modeled linearly, but in reality, there's a nonlinear component. Because when you have, a, say, a, a player who walks a lot, he'll bring much less valuable to value to a team that doesn't have any home run hitters. Yeah. Um, and there is interaction. It's roughly been ignored because it's second order. But in football, it's, it's front and center. But basketball is yeah, front basketball and center. Yeah, basketball too, for sure. And, and in fact, the reason why we don't yeah. think about it that much is because basketball is so star-driven at the NBA level. And that drives so much of the differences between the teams is to have those super top players. I had a wonderful conversation with our sports analytics crew, crew on, on Friday they're working for the you're basketball talking, You're talking about the students. Uh, this is the University of Pennsylvania, our, 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 our University of Pennsylvania sports analytics group. Some of them are working for the basketball team. I said, what's the problem you're working on? Well, it turns out the Penn basketball team doesn't really have any superstars. It's collegiate, of course, but it has a very deep team. So they've been charged with the problem of figuring out who to play uh, simultaneously great. and in what shift. Someone's like a hockey you know, mm, crew. Yeah. And they have such, such great depth that it's it, there's problems like who works well together and they've been asked to look at the data and figure well, out. I hope they're creating data because the coach needs to be running and substituting in very Well, I have to tell you, you remember the USF guy that talks That's about right. you know, Todd, experiments with combinations. You use the magic word, by the way. I said to my students, you've got to convince the coach yes. to experiment. Yes. Otherwise, you won't get the right mm-hmm. independent variation yeah. and to, to make this assessment. And I said, just, just get in there and figure out how to experiment. The other thing that they're doing, this is a big interesting question. He says, because they have a lot of depth, this is fascinating in basketball. They can play harder per person because they can sub right. them in and out. Yeah. And so one of the things they typically do with basketball is that they don't. They usually let the court, the, the opposing team, come up to midcourt before you press them. And that's because you're tired and, you, and everybody has to husband their energy. But if you have depth, you can push. They can press them right off the bat, tire them out, and they claim that this is really effective. But they don't have data. So and then you go ahead and you try and experiment while awesome. you see whether that works. That's great. Great, so, great fun. So by the way, Todd Golden is a coach. He's been on here a couple times, and we need to get him on, Maddie. I'll be getting college basketball. So about to get our own, right, our own right coach now. on. Well, we're, that'd be great. Let's get him on as well, who's taken his team to the tournament before. Guys, uh, one last question, one kind of high level, another question from journalists related to what we just talked about in the last few minutes here. If you had to pick a sport where you think sports analytics is going to make the greatest progress in the next few years, which sport do you think is poised to do that? And let's go in a different order now. Eric, do you have an answer off the top here? Just quickly, I was going to say soccer. Mm. And Why is that? That's because you know I keep hearing about not only motion tracking data, but things that we never thought about, like space created by a player, maximum speed. And it goes back to my comment of, Large scale, very large scale with lots of data that can be done in an automated way. If you can literally measure the X, Y coordinates of every player at every point in time, and you talk about your comment of interactions, which definitely exists in soccer, for sure. I think from the on field component, I think there's a huge opportunity. That's my sport. So let, I'm going I'm to give two answers, and I'm going I'm to cheat and jump in on this one because it's the same. One of my answers is the same as Eric's. It's for a slightly different reason. I like the way you characterize it. I believe that, but I think there's a pretty big tension between the popularity of soccer and the money in soccer. And where analytics is right now, and th- there's a tension there, there's an inefficiency there in some sense. That you mean it's a multi-billion-dollar sport, and they're spending pennies on analytics. Yeah, exactly, and so I understand it's hard. They they have probably the hardest of the major sports to analyze because it's interdependent play, it's continuous play, but. That there's just too much interest. There's too much money. It's by far the world's biggest sport, and it's just inevitable in my mind that it's going to it's going to jump. I'm going to save my second answer, Adi. What's yours? Well, I, I was my initial thoughts were of course soccer. It's the it's the least advanced, so therefore has he the said, most. Of course, to go. we're not interesting, Eric. Um, we, we gave obvious answers, Eric. but I'm going to counter that at least a little bit in the sense that the teams seem to be pretty darn good at figuring out who's good at this game. 
and they and and money buys victory in soccer. Obviously, there's more, there's less cap in soccer. Way better than any other sport. It's just not even close. So it suggests that they really know what they're doing no, in a way at a professional I, level. I don't agree at that the way, way. The, at the way that the other sports still are quite ambitious. So no, I'm, we don't know that their their prices aren't necessarily that efficient. They, they, I wouldn't say that they're efficient, but the good teams are really good and they buy them. Um, so I actually think that there's a lot of progress to be had in football. American football. American football. And the reason why I see that is that there's still a big gap between the amount of stuff that's done, being done uh, by that's kind of talked about in the research community that's still not picked up on the field. Yeah, well, and I think once that sure. happens, that's you're going to see big, the, big advances. The, the, the analytics community is ahead of the sport, partly that's because right. of the sport having made data available in a way others others haven't. Shane Jensen. Well, I, I don't know if we. I want to maintain the focus on football. That was going to be mine, in, in part because I think, again, these concepts of like space creation and, and, and talent evaluation that you can do with this high-resolution data. I, I talked about scheme earlier. I think football has the greatest, you know, ability to kind of scheme, you know, to create a scheme to, to, to eliminate the advantages of a certain player. I mean, not, it's not, you know, I mean, I think in soccer, you're kind of limited. We can understand who the good players are, and I'm sure there's things to be done with scheme, but there's not, it's too big of a playing surface, and there's not that many players. You can't actually, you know, Messi's still going to wreck you no matter how you scheme him. That's interesting. As opposed to football, I think there's a great propensity to be able to actually use that knowledge about player performance to actually change you know, in-game strategy. I love the optimism about American football. Let me pose one more quickly to get your reactions. What about tennis? Don't we, shouldn't we hear more about tennis, especially since it's a repetitive motion, they initiate play. Shouldn't all that performance technology be focused on tennis and see jumps there? I would say no, because it's a sport that has the most steps and differences between the top. You go one to two to uh, three to four. Edges are so or haven't we maybe already seen the jump? Well, with these old athletes, you know, continue size. to dominate. All right. Fun topic, fellas. We'll pick it up again. This has been a special, enjoyable Reunion of sorts, first time in person. Appreciate you guys being here for the whole team. Adi, Shane, Eric, for Matty Dads, who's busted his tail over the last two hours to make this thing work. Appreciate you listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.